We are in Numbers chapter 20 this morning, Numbers 20. And I'm just going to go ahead and read through the first 13 verses. So get your Bibles open, get ready for what the Lord has to teach us today. Numbers chapter 20 as we continue Bamidbar. Remember that word Bamidbar, I've used it a lot, in the wilderness. The Hebrew for in the wilderness, Bamidbar, that's the name of the book and that's where... We continue to be. So watch this. Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. There was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. Well, that's a shock. Thus the people contended with Moses and spoke saying if only we have perished when our brothers perished before the Lord why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place it is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates nor is there water to drink and then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. And shall, you shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly. And the congregation and their beasts drink. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah. Because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. So much here, Lord. I told my sister this week. You could go 900 directions with these 13 verses. And I just pray that you would, as it were, strap us down to the truth and draw us through this with with understanding and comprehension and revelation that, Lord, truly touches our hearts. And speak to each one as you will as we consider your truth today in Jesus' name. Amen. As Numbers 20 begins, you can almost imagine some Israelites saying, Bye-bye, Bamidbar. See you later, wilderness. Because at the beginning of chapter 20, 40 years have now passed since they left Egypt. In fact, between chapters 19 and 20, we finished 19 on Wednesday night. So in just three days for us, we skip over 37 years. You might note that in your Bibles. 37 years of unaccounted for camping and hiking and training and discipline and dependency and development out in the desert. 
37 years have gone by now. Well, what happened? What's the story? What took place? We don't know. That's between God and his people. It's kind of like life. What happens to you, what happens to me week to week, things no one else knows about, but you know, and the Lord knows, and that's all that matters. And so we just know that he's been with his people, he's been leading his people, he's been dealing with his people. Now over 37 years between chapter 19 and chapter 20, and at the beginning of chapter 20, we are back at Kadesh Barnea. Back at the border, where 38 years before, the fathers failed in their faith. We're back at the border. Note this, verse 1 says, The sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. The first month of what? It's the first month of the year Miriam died. First month of the year that Miriam died. Whatever year this is. This is the year that she died. It's the first month of that year. By the way, Miriam, it's the Hebrew name for someone else familiar to you, and that is the mother of Jesus, Mary. Miriam's the Hebrew name. We say Mary because it's been, you know, translated into the Greek. But it's Miriam. And so Miriam, sister of Moses, now dies in the first month of this year. And by the way, in the fifth month of this same year, the chapter will close out, verses 23 through 29, Aaron dies. First month of this year, Miriam dies. The fifth month of this same year, Aaron dies. How do we know what year it is? First month, fifth month, it could be any year, right? No. At the end of this 40th year, which by the way, the 40th year of their journey will go all the way from Numbers chapter 20 through the end of Deuteronomy. That's all within this time frame. Okay, because at the end of Deuteronomy, we're going to note that Moses will also die, and that's the same year. So we're in a one-year time frame from Numbers 20 to Deuteronomy 34. Note that. Micah chapter 6, verse 4. The Lord spoke through the prophet, saying, Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. There's your leadership council. And the Lord gave them for the people for the entire 40 years... But you might still ask, well, how do we know, though, that this is the 40th year? It doesn't say here in chapter 20 what year it is. It just says in the first month. In Numbers 33, which sums up the journey. In fact, Numbers 33 is a nice place to go if you just want bullet points for the whole journey from Egypt to the border of the Promised Land. From Egypt, literally, to the Jordan River, Numbers 33 defines that. And in verse 8 of Numbers 33, it says, Then Aaron the priest went up the mount to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there, listen, in the 40th year after the sons of Israel had come from the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. That's this chapter. And you can flip to the end of the chapter. You'll see a little heading in there in your Bible probably that says Aaron dies. That's at the fifth month of the 40th year. Same year, 40th year now that we know that Mary died in the first month. First month, Mary dies. Fifth month, Aaron dies. At the end of this year, Moses will die as well. But it's going to take us a while to get to the death of Moses. We're going to have to walk that out through all of Deuteronomy before we get there. Numbers 20 is the first five months of the 40th year of the trek. I want to make sure that's very clear. But something else that you need to recognize, and I said this midweek, they never once wandered in the wilderness. 
And I really like that. The people of God don't wonder. The people of God are led. The people of God are never lost. God doesn't dump them in the desert. He never left them. He led them step by step. And it's the same for you and the same for me. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 20. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth. And you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness. And they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out. That'd be nice. Nor did their feet swell. Also nice. But the point is God was with them. They didn't wander. To say, to talk about the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites is, is not correct. Because they were led. Hebrews 13.5 says, and I just, I love to repeat this from time to time because we need this assurance. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And if you were with us when we studied Hebrews, you may recall that's the five negative positive. The five negative positive, it literally translates in the Greek, I will not, cannot, I will never, no, never forsake you. Five negatives to pronounce this glorious positive that he will never, ever desert or forsake those who follow after him. Those who are led. So here we are. We're we're 40 years along. But in these first five months, we discover, we, we read about truly some of the most tragic events of the entire journey in this chapter. Death of Miriam. Death of Aaron. Ultimately, death of Moses, but not dealt with in this chapter. And we deal with an epic failure. Between the deaths of the two major league players, Miriam and Aaron... And yet before his death, Moses swings and strikes out. He swings hard. In fact, he strikes twice. He doesn't even need a third strike. He strikes out on the second strike. This is a failure in the part of the deliverer. In fact, it's amazing. It happens at this little border town of Kadesh. Where the first generation failed. And therefore would not go into the promised land. They come back to the same place. And in the same place, Moses fails and will not go into the promised land. It's ironic. The deliverer himself has a failure of faith. Get this. Note this in his last year of life. So if you think as a follower of Jesus, you're just going to get better and better and better. Don't be surprised when all of a sudden some old thing springs up and shocks you. Some old sin, some old wound, some old issue you thought was put to rest and forgotten and and no longer has hold over you and you're strong and you're mature and you're growing and as you're coming, maybe even to the end of your days, you're thinking, I'm going to just cruise on out of this world and then epic failure. Rick, I'm not feeling so encouraged this morning. (laughs) 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul said, These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. I'll tell you this, the church, and please hear my heart, my intention, the church today is no better than the church of the first century. We've had 2,000 years to learn and grow and get it right. And we still sin. 
And we still fall. And we still fail. And we still cry out to the Lord. And he is still faithful. That's the point. That's the point. You're, you're going to trip. I'm not saying you should or plan for it or look forward to it. Hey, I'm going to sin. Might as well sin. That's not the point at all. It's just understand that we are feeble and we are frail. We are being perfected, but we will not be perfect until the day of Christ Jesus. Until the day that he calls us out. Then it's done. I look forward to that day. Oh, to be in my glorified state. Not to have to even consider these things anymore, but that's not today. And so Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. That is not just a verse for young people. That is a verse for all people. I'm standing. I'm good. We're all good. Take heed. Be on the alert. Be spiritual. Stay in the word. Continue to pray. We will need and depend upon the Lord our entire lives. Now, Moses is 120 years old. And again, two strikes and he's out. And he doesn't lose the inning. He's out of the game. He's not playing anymore. This is the failure by which Moses has his passport revoked. And he will not enter the promised land. Here's the story. We read through it. But the Israelites are becoming contentious. Again! Oh, this people. Now, the reason why I was so focused on we've had 37 years pass is you need to understand something very critical here. And that is that these are not the same Israelites that were contentious as the Israelites that were contentious back in chapter 16 and 17. These are their kids. This is a different group of people. This is a completely different generation that is now contending at Kadesh. And they're thirsty and they're weary. And they come up and they say, what is going on here? In fact, you can see there's some confusion. They even say back in verse 5, why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It's not a place of grain, figs, vines, pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Duh, it's not the promised land. You're not there yet. You're on the border, but you haven't arrived. Well, they're confused. They're, they're thinking, oh, so are we, I mean, is this, this has been 37 years of their entire lives in the wilderness. Oh, is this just it now? No, no, promised land is yet ahead. As you grow in your walk with Jesus, please understand that. The promised land is yet ahead. This is not it. We haven't arrived. We're not there quite yet. But, but what happens here is, To Moses and Aaron, and man, I get this. Moses and Aaron dealt with the first generation, that contentious lot. And they contended, and they grumbled, and it was a constant stream of nauseating problems. This is the next generation. And when they begin to contend, as we read in this story, for Moses and Aaron, the song remains the same. We've heard this song before. Yes, the song is the same, but the band's different. This is a different group. Cut them some slack. They're not the same players. And as we look at the children of the children of Israel, the sons and daughters of the sons of Israel, this this next generation, these kids, they're thirsty, they're hungry, they're weary. How are you when you're in that same place? I'm not good to be around when I haven't eaten for a while. 
I'm not a good faster. If asked to get spiritual, I just get... I mean, think just just the natural man, the natural woman. They're thirsty. We don't have anything to drink. We're hungry. They're tired. Their clothes look great. But they're just in this place. And we have to be taught. We need to be led out of our grumbling and led out of our contention. But sometimes it just happens. I think the Lord knows that. Now, the Apostle Paul does say to you, to me, do all things without grumbling and disputing, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. See, we are called to be different. But that's, that's not what we are. It's, it's what we're called to be. It's what we're called to pursue. We're to pursue a life without grumbling. But I think God understands sometimes when we're just tired. He knows when we're just thirsty. So look at verse 6. Moses and Aaron, they came in from the doorway of the presence of the assembly. They came from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting. And they fell on their faces. Flat-faced Moses. <laughs> Moses and Aaron praying again. It's always the right response when someone grumbles at you. Just pray, just stop, get back before the Lord. And then the glory of the Lord, that Shekinah glory, appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod. And you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation. Speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. And you shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock. And let the congregation and there be strength. It's pretty simple. I got it. We've been this for 37 years with this group. Show them again. I got it. It's interesting. Note God's response. God's response to the whining of the children of Israel is to give them water. God's previous response to the whining of the children of Israel was to open up the earth and have them swallow Korah and all of his buddies. It's a different situation. It's a different people. And God knows the heart. And God knows what we need. More on that in just a second. But then Moses took the rod. And as we read, he stands before the people. And he shouts at them, listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And he gets all angry. And he strikes out. Now listen, before we get to the strike out of Moses, there are a couple things you got to note that have just happened here. First of all, note the rods. The rods. And I say rods in the plural because I think there are two in the story. Now, I could be wrong about the second one. There's a possibility. But the context implies that the first rod, the primary rod, when God says, verse 8, take the rod, it is the rod. What do you mean? Aaron's rod that budded and blossomed and, and produced fruit. The one we just read about, number 17. That amazing story. Last time we talked about these things, that almond joy, right, of Aaron, because it was an almond rod. They were almond buds and blossoms and, and almond fruit on the rod. Remarkable story. And the kids, the children of Israel, probably had grown up hearing the story of the dead stick that became an almond branch. And it's likely over 37 years, though I can't prove it because we weren't there and we don't hear about it, but it's likely that rod was brought out in times of authority. To remind everybody, hey, hey, it's the living rod. Remember where the authority has been placed, has been placed on Aaron. So maybe it was brought out from time to time. Again, it 
indicated divine authority. So God says, take the rod. I want them to see the rod. The rod of authority, so they understand that this isn't Moses, this isn't Aaron, this is the Lord directing them. This is God who's about to do something. He wanted the source of the water to be absolutely clear. What does Moses do? He takes the rod and starts striking the rock. Now, here's where we don't know if it's the rod or if it's Moses' rod, because it does say, note this, that Moses lifted up his hand, um... And struck the rock with his rod, verse 11. So that's where I think we may be talking about too. Take the rod, God says. So they take the rod of Aaron out there. But Moses in his anger grabs his own rod and strikes the rock. Now it's possible he strikes the rock with the almond rod of Aaron. Which would have been really interesting. Can you imagine? Buds and blossoms and fruit flying all over the place. Someone gets an almond in the eye. Come on, Moses. What's going on here, man? But don't miss this. It says at the end of verse 11 that water came forth abundantly. Which tells us the intention of the Lord. Even in Moses' fury, which was wrong. Even in his sinful anger. God still cared and took care of his people. So the other thing to note before we get back to Moses is the grace. The grace, and this is what I was intimating before. This is the Lord's desire to refresh and to reassure his people. And I'm so thankful for this because even when we strike out, God is still taking care of his people. Even when I do something foolish, people go, wow, God is still taking care of his people. God still knows what we need. And the people's response They immediately start to water their herds and get drinks themselves. They tune out Moses' anger and they tune in to God's gracious watering. Isn't it nice to work for him? Isn't it good to know that he's got this? You you and me, we're not smart enough to mess this up. We can't mess up God's intentions. And the Lord also knows when it's just my thirst making me grumpy as opposed to sinful rebellion because he knows the heart. There are times we're all just grumpy because we're thirsty or because we're hungry. And Father knows. Give him something to drink. Like the time we were in Israel. We're all lined up. It's the very first tour we ever took there. Mike knows exactly where I'm going with this. And we're all lined up and it's pouring rain. It was a rough day. Cold, icy sleet, lightning, thunder, rain, snow. The whole, we got all the weather in Jerusalem that day. It was wild. It's wonderful. It's miserable, but it was wonderful. We're all lined up finally, huddled under this overhang and, and trying to line up to get some food. And, and, and one of the guys in the tour, bless his heart, which you know is what we say as Christians when we're about to talk about someone's foolishness. Bless his heart, he's in the back. He's like, come on, man. Someone let me get up to the front. I got hypoglycemia. Mike and Carrie are right there. Cheryl, Cheryl leans over and goes, was it Cheryl or was it you, Mike? Cheryl. It was Cheryl. Bless her heart. <laughs> she just leans in and goes, have a glass of orange juice and shut up. <laughs> he was just... He just had it. It wasn't a moment of rebellion. He wasn't trying to usurp the trip. He was just worn out. And, and God knows the difference. I love that too. He knows when I'm just being in my flesh. And he knows when I'm rebelling. 
And something to note here is there is a contentiousness among the children of the children of Israel, but they're not in rebellion. They're just, they just need some water, man. They just need a glass of orange juice and shut up. It's very simple. But Moses loses it. Moses loses it. This was no time for disciplinary action, but our man Moses was out of step with the Lord. Three reasons that Moses lost the promised land. Three reasons why this punishment was so severe. And number one is Moses misrepresented Yahweh. Moses was, in his anger, Moses was representing Moses. Moses was not representing the heart of God. And you see the contrast because the heart of God said, water the people. Heart of Moses said, you rebels, Morim, Morim, which is disobedient, impudent ones. Morim, it sounds so close to moron. You, you know, and, that's, and Moses is going this direction. God's over here. Psalm 106 verse 32 says, they also provoked him to wrath at the waters of Meribah. So that it went hard with Moses on their account because they were rebellious against his spirit. He spoke rashly with his lips. It was all Moses that was angry. And by the way, I even cut Moses a little bit of slack because this is an old wound for him. This is why I say you can, you can walk years and years of your life doing just great and suddenly find yourself in a, a somewhat sinful place. Sinful anger, sinful lashing out. Because an old untended wound gets poked when you least expect it. And what was Moses' wound? The contentious people. He had dealt with the fathers. He had been worn out by the fathers. And now the children are doing the same thing. You rebels. Well, it wasn't even the same group. But the old stuff popped up in Moses. And it can happen. And did you catch it? This is what Jewish scholar Jacob Milgram calls... The fatal pronoun, the fatal pronoun, Moses says, verse 10, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? We? Really? So you're part of the miracle working now? Shall we do this for you? 38 years earlier in Korah's rebellion, Moses had humbly and wisely spoken these words. Number 16, verse 28. This you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds. For this is not my doing. What's not his doing? The entire thing, really, from Egypt to that point, was not Moses' doing. He was just there. He was just front row of the 50-yard line. You know, he was just the servant of God. It was the Lord's doing. The Lord, really, the Lord's the deliverer. The Lord's the healer. The Lord's the provider. The Lord's the one who got them through the wilderness. But here, all of a sudden, at Kadesh, he says, shall we provide water for you? In other words, we might say it this way. Why should we do this for you? But the problem is there's no we. There's no we. We don't do anything. He does everything. Jesus said, I'm the vine, John 15, 5. I'm the vine. I'm the vine. You're the branches. And he says, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do. Oh, see, I was going to go with a few things. 
You can do nothing. Apart from me, you can't do anything. It's me. If there's anything that is kingdom-oriented or godly or divine, anything biblical, he's the one doing it. We're the vessel. We're the branches. He flows through us. And he will use us in, in the positive. But it's so easy to get out of tune with God when I, replace, when I replace he with we. Look at what we've done. And I remind you, we haven't done nothing. Look at what he's done. See, if we go from he to we, eventually I'm going to make it about me. And that's the process of the sin nature. He becomes we becomes me. Remember the old Stephen Curtis Chapman song? Love this song. Can they see God for who he really is? In what they see in you and me? Can they see God for who he really is? For who he really is, is all they really need to see. It's a great reminder. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul reminds us, we're ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors, representatives. You know, we're just coming with the message that he's given. Because it's he, not we. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul doesn't have the audacity to say, we're here to reconcile you. No, he's making an appeal through us. So that you can be reconciled to him. He's the reconciler. We're just the messengers. We don't represent ourselves. We don't represent, by the way, the bridge. In this community, you don't represent the Bridge Christian Fellowship. You don't even represent the church. You represent Jesus. When you're in the marketplace, when you're in the home, when you're you're at work, at business, wherever you're at, you are a representative. You don't represent me. You represent Jesus. I represent him. Moses forgets that. And even more serious is the reason that people begin to misrepresent God in the first place. The reason why Moses misrepresented him. Why Moses comes off as angry and striking when when God wants to water is very simply this. Verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy. In the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Moses misrepresented God because Moses, number two, manifested unbelief. He manifested unbelief. Now, (laughs) we've watched Moses for a long time here. Moses was unbelieving. That's impossible. He's the deliverer, right? The lawgiver. From the burning bush to the blazing mountain to the bright face glowing with the glory of God. Moses didn't believe. Come on, man. That's unbelievable. God said, you did not believe me. And he always chooses his words specifically. The root word of believe here is aman, which means to prove to be firm. It means to rely upon. It means to have full trust and confidence in. But we don't like this because it's always unsettling when a man of God or a woman of faith manifests a lack of faith. When someone we trust as as one of our leaders breaks down, people will scatter. 
And so we don't like to hear these things. In fact, it's funny, commentators, Gordon Wenham says, some commentators find it difficult to see how Moses' action could be construed as unbelief. You know why? It's because they're commentators. (laughs) They're pontificating potato heads is what they are. Sometimes refer to them as spudniks. Commentators. Don't read the commentator and go, oh, well, there's your answer right there. Read the word of God. Listen to what the Lord is saying because commentators, be careful, and pastors likewise can talk the truth right out of the scriptures. Let the scriptures be your guide. We know, we don't even have to have the conversation. We know unbelief was the problem. Why? Because God said so. I mean, I don't really think it was unbelief. Um, Because you have not believed me. It's kind of obvious there. But further, if, if Moses had believed that just speaking to the rock would work, he would have done it. That's, by the way, the source. That's where the unbelief was focused. He didn't believe speaking to the rock would yield the water. God says, speak to the rock. Moses is like, (laughs) again, he's angry. All the old frustration wounds from the previous contentious generation reopened. But that's not why he strikes the rock. He's not striking, listen to me, he's not striking the rock out of anger. Not striking the rock to prove a point. The truth is, he didn't believe speaking to the rock would work. He didn't believe it would be enough. God needed Moses' help to crack open this miracle and prove a point. Of course, that's what, of course God needs our help to make things happen, to generate experience. Ever strike out on your own? Because, listen, because what God asks you to do just doesn't fit with your paradigm. Never do something because what you know he is requesting is just, ah, just I don't know if it's going to work that way I tell you what it took me a while when God said would you be willing to plant a church on North Whidbey Island and I began thinking there's nothing there Lord there's nothing there yep that's where I want you yeah, but there's nothing there I, I, it'd be fun sometimes if I could do it to replay the conversations that I have with the Lord in that month of September of 2003 because it was such a weird request and I didn't even know if it was him in the first place. Where were we supposed to meet? In an open field? Oh, I know, Lord. We'll meet in a barn. <laughs> he knew what he was doing and it was weird to me. And you know what? This whole idea of unbelief, unbelief manifests itself in our lives in so many ways. It does in our religiosity. You know why mankind gets so religious? Pick any religion, but, but we'll focus in on Christianity. You know why we take our Christianity, which is a, a faith in the grace of God, and we start to pile law upon law upon law and rules and regulations and denominational traditions, and we pile law. You know why we do that? Because we don't really believe he's just going to save us by grace. We've got to have some assurance. And my assurance is my church attendance card. I was faithful. I was sick on that day, Lord. I really was. I have a doctor's note. 
By grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. Can it be any clearer than that? That's our faith. In Jesus to save us. Not in ourselves to save ourselves, but in our religion. If we work extra hard, add some extra rules, then perhaps maybe in our salvation we can feel a little more secure. Unbelief. It's just unbelief. In our relationships. It's a little tougher. In our relationships, unbelief manifests itself because we're not really sure that love's going to work. I don't know that agape love, unconditional love, is going to be enough to hold on to this person or to care for this person. So what do we do? In our relationships, unbelief manifests itself as posturing and playing games and manipulating and angling to try and keep the person where you want them to be because we don't really believe in the other person or ourselves to make it work. In our riches, or lack thereof. So whether you have a lot or a little, it makes no difference. We have a tendency to trust our own dollars and cents. Our own sense about our dollars. And so we store it up in banks and in barns. You know, just in case. What did Jesus say? Read Matthew chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. I got you. Just follow me. Oh, I'll follow you, Lord, but I just got to check my portfolio. Unbelief. How about in our reputations? This, this is a good one, and this comes right back to Moses. In our reputations, if I speak to the rock and nothing happens, I'm going to look like a fool. God told me to do this, but if I do it and there's no big buzz, I'm going to look like a fool. Unbelief. And here's Moses in this place. Listen, manifesting unbelief always leads a person to misrepresent God. Not to mention, number three, messing up the very gospel of his grace. Moses manifests unbelief. He misrepresents God. And number three, he messes up the message This is the third and final reason Moses lost his passport to the promised land. Less immediately obvious, we only know this by looking back over time, and we realize that we see it by looking back. Listen to me. Note this. And you Bible students, you may know where I'm going, but listen again to this. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 tells us, The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just. A man or a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. That's the rock. Moses calls him. Interesting that Moses is the one who calls him that. Psalm 18, verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Psalm 18, 31 concludes, My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Who is God but the Lord and who is a rock except our God? Isaiah 44, verse 8, Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me, the Lord says? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. And I'll tell you what, if God knows of none, there isn't any other one. No other rock but God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, the Apostle Paul's writing, The Israelites all ate the same spiritual food. Speaking of the manna. They all drank of the same spiritual drink, speaking of the water. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and Paul makes it clear, and the rock was 
Christ. The rock was Christ. But Moses messed up the message. What what, what do you mean? What are you getting at here? Let me ask you this. What happened when Moses took his rod and struck the Nile? Which he was told to do. Strike the Nile River. What happened? One word. Blood. It turned to blood. He struck the Nile and it turned to blood. What happened when God told Moses to strike the rock? Which he did the first time back in Exodus 17. Water flowed. Strike the Nile. Blood spreads out. Strike the rock. Water flows. Exodus 17, 5. Pass before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile. Same staff. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And this time around, it's different. Now listen, Isaiah 48 verse 21 says, They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed forth. The rock was struck and the water flowed. And the Nile struck, the blood flowed with the staff that Moses, the law, picture of the law, which reveals sin, which brings death. God says, don't use that rod this time. (laughs) Go get the other rod. Take the rod, Aaron's rod, the one that budded, the one that represents resurrected life. You take that rod. Why? What happened when the soldier struck Jesus in the side with his spear on the cross? Remember what flowed out? Blood and water. Blood and water. Blood and water. John 19, uh, verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. So there it is. But listen to this. 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testifies, John writes, the Spirit and the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. John really had, what a visual. And I think think it was so graphically visual for John because he saw it. He saw the soldier stick the spear in. He saw blood and water flow out, which reveals medically a burst heart. Jesus was dead. He was absolutely dead. That's kind of the point that John is making. Jesus was dead. I witnessed him. There's no denying when the blood and the water flowed, we knew he was gone. So the same John writes in the spirit testifies that we saw Jesus again after that. After the blood and water, after the death, we saw the resurrected Jesus. Go get the rod, Moses. Go get the rod that sprung to life. And come to the rock. Jesus. Jesus is the rock struck. The first rock. The first time. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53 verse 4. But here's the picture. It's so beautiful. Blood and water came out of the rock. Blood from the Nile, water from the rock. But the rock was struck the first time and out came the water. But it was only to be struck once. 
Romans 6 verse 9, Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. Or 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. So what does God tell Moses to do the second time? Don't use the, rock that you, don't use the rod that you struck with. Go get Aaron's rod, the rod of resurrected life, and speak to the rock. See, once the rock has been struck, you don't strike it again. You speak to the rock. You speak to the rock. Before their eyes, he said, that it may yield its water. It is so beautiful. That's what happens. Jesus is the rock. There's only one rock. I know of no other one, the Lord says. The rock was struck. And now, you don't strike the rock. Speak to the rock. The pattern that God set out, that Moses messed up because he struck the rock the second time. One's supposed to. God says, speak to the rock that the water may flow. Speak to the rock and the living water will flow. That's how it works. The rock that was struck is now the rock resurrected that we speak to and outflows the water. Jesus said in John seven thirty seven, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost body will flow rivers of living water. And by this, John says he was talking about the spirit, the rock who gives the spirit. Speak to the rock. Speak to the rock. Now, now some, I, that's really all of that. That's not what I wanted to talk about this morning. So here we go. <laughs> that's all background. Some of you have heard and considered all this before. You've read the story. You see the manifestation of unbelief. You see Moses misrepresenting God. And we recognize, wow, there was such a beautiful prophetic picture. If Moses had just spoken to the rock, then we could say, here's the pattern, which I just said anyway. That's the great thing about the prophetic word of God is it's true anyway, whatever we do. Even if we mess it up, it's still there. The prophecy is still there. The picture is still there. That grace has a way of overflowing unbelief. And though Moses loses the land... Well, he's going to be given grace to see it. But this beautiful picture before us of Christ the rock, once struck, now spoken to, to yield the living water. Now hold that thought. Moses, by the way, is going to put in the request right away. Did you know that? After this scene where the Lord says, you're not going into the land. Moses will redress the subject in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 25. Let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country, and Lebanon. I know I'm busted, but let me do this. Deuteronomy 3, 26. But the Lord was angry with me on your account, Moses writes, and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough, speak to me no more of this matter. That's Parenting 101, by the way. <laughs> Enough! Speak to me no more of this matter. Because that's what kids do. I know you said I was on restriction for two weeks, but can we just make it 48 hours? Is that possible? I, I've been really good, Dad, for a half hour. Speak to me no more of this. <laughs> and Moses will die on Mount Pisgah after having overlooked the land from afar. But you know what? Here's the grace of God. Stay with me. The grace of God is that Moses still gets to see the land. 
Not from Mount Pisgah, but from the Mount of Transfiguration. He still gets to see the land on the inside. God gets him in. I love the story. Matthew 17, verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. Shekinah glory. Remember that? His garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Moses got into the land. He's in the promised land. Isn't that just beautiful? I wonder sometimes if Jesus ever said something like this to Moses. Moses, welcome to the land your feet don't know. (laughs) Because God got him in and there he is with Jesus. By the way, that's always how you get into the land with Jesus. There's no other way. No other way to get to the promise unless through Jesus Christ. But there's a greater prophetic picture here in play. You see verse 4 of this Matthew 17 story, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here. One for you, of course, and one for Moses, absolutely, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him as if God saying enough. Speak to me no more about the law and the prophets. Listen to him. Listen to him. When the disciples heard, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came up to them and touched them and said, Get up. Do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized in Jesus Christ. And that's where I want you to go with this. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Listen. Grace and truth don't strike. Grace and truth don't rail and rage. Grace and truth, when we realize grace and truth through Jesus, it causes us simply to speak. By the Spirit of God. We don't strike. We speak. We speak the truth in love. We don't strike and lash out in anger. You're never going to get someone to the gospel through angry means. Why don't you believe? (laughs) Bible bashing, they used to call it. Which is just the world's rebellious way of talking about someone who's just speaking. But that's what our call is. We, we, we speak. Brothers and sisters, do you manifest faith or unbelief? Can they see God for who he really is in what they see in you and me? Do you ever misrepresent the Lord? Please don't answer out loud. Because we'd all have to say, Amen. <laughs> You ever mess up the message of the gospel because your flesh gets in the way? See, Moses was guilty of all of this. And if if as Paul explained that the rock that followed them was the graphic representation of Jesus Christ, then in a way, in a sense, when Moses struck the rock, he was striking Jesus. Is that too, too far for some of you? When Moses struck the rock, he was striking Jesus. Hear me out on this. Hear me out. I don't mean physically, but spiritually. Do you 
ever strike Jesus. I do. When I lash out at God's people, when I usurp his authority and make it from he to we to me, uh, when I obscure his nature or get in the way of his message, and when I, listen, when I strike his people, I strike him. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So if you feed, if you clothe, if you visit, if you love, you're doing it to Jesus. But if you strike, you're doing it to Jesus. Now, I can easily apply Matthew 25, to the Jewish people. In fact, I really think that's the context when Jesus is talking about, you know, the sheep and the goats and it's the judgment of nations. And he says, the way that you treated these brothers of mine, I think he's talking about Israel. But the application does go beyond the way we treat anyone is going to evidence whether we believe the Lord or not. And so if I lash out at anyone, Israel or not, I'm, I'm, I'm striking at the heart of God. Now, In this last week, the anti-Semitic attacks we've seen in our country have sickened me and angered me. While interesting countries like the Netherlands, Austria, Hungary, and the Czech Republic are flying the flag of Israel in support. And by the way, even (laughs) Germany was showing great support for the people of Israel, but America... We're in trouble. Not to freak anybody out, but this country is in trouble. We are in serious jeopardy of moving out of the blessing of Abraham and into the curse category. Those who bless Abraham will be blessed. Those who curse him will be cursed. And we're on, we are teetering on that. As people in our country and in our government, it's the first time when we've seen this kind of thing happen where people in our government were shouting out offenses against the people of Israel. Well, Rick, you're just one of those evangelical Christians who thinks Israel can do no wrong. No, I'm not. But I also know how they handled this last campaign, and I don't have time to even talk about that. But when you knock on someone's door before dropping a bomb, who does that? We don't do that. We go to war. It's war. They send, they send okay, I'm going to at least say this. They send out little uh, door knocker bombs, basically. That do no damage, but they... And people know something's coming. So they get out. And then the destruction of the building that is completely full of Hamas munitions. But Rick, is a school. Yeah, and they're using the school for the Hamas munitions. Anyway. Get back to personal. (laughs) When we go from he to we to me, when we are driven... Even we think, I'm driven for the Lord. Well, if you're driven, it's not for the Lord. Because we're not driven, we're led. When our religion or our riches or our reputation supersedes godly relationships, relationships that are based on the love of Christ, when we take swings at Jesus' people, we strike the rock. We strike Jesus. Let me try and make a a finer point of this. Get a picture of this. It it was the first day for me of the third grade. 
First day, little Ricky is out on the playground. And uh, some bullies on the playground were giving me a hassle. And which we've all, you know, had those experiences. So I'm not, it's not an old wound. Don't worry, I'm fine. (laughs) So on the playground, these bullies are going off. And my friend, Mike Harbison, comes up and takes their side. And I was angry. I was so angry. And I swung at him and caught him right across the face. Hard. My friend looked at me and just stood there. And I'm like, okay, that didn't have the effect I wanted. <laughs> so I did it again. And he stood there looking at me as tears welled up in his eyes and poured down his face and the bell rang and everybody ran to class. And I stood there. I, and I, I, I can, I can still to this day feel how sick I felt. Why did I hit my friend? Why did I strike him? How did that happen? In that place of defensiveness and anger, I lashed out. Now, wonderfully, it was third grade, so by the next recess, Mike and I were playing, you know, volleyball and having a great time. (laughs) Kids forget this stuff. But I've remembered that over the years. Listen to this, Matthew 26, verse 59. The chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death. They didn't find any. Even though there were many false witnesses who came forward later on, two came forward, and they said, this man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and he said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you're the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said, you have said it. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He quotes from Daniel. (laughs) And the high priest tore his robes and said, he's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you've now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all answered, he deserves death. And they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? Has it ever been you? Have you ever been the one who struck the face of Christ? I would never do that. I can't even imagine that. Listen, I'm not angling for guilt here. But that we would comprehend the impact of our unbelief on other people. And when I don't believe God, and I get all up in myself, and I strike back at people, I might as well be striking the face of Jesus. It is that serious. My other option is the sweet significance of speaking to the rock who then pours out living water, who then refreshes my soul and my spirit that I don't strike out. That instead I turn and I I love. When was the last time you struck the rock? I wouldn't strike Jesus, Rick. I know that. When was the last, last time you struck a brother or sister? Well, I wouldn't hit anybody. When was the last time you struck them with your words? Ouch. And how should God respond to us when we strike the rock? 
Hebrews 12, verse 5, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. Jesus said, Revelation 3.19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Moses had to know the discipline of the Father. Because Moses... He messed up the beautiful prophecy. He, he misrepresented God and he manifested unbelief. And it's all one package that caused him to strike the rock which followed them. And spiritually, he's striking the rock of Christ. And so Moses needed the discipline. But see, here's where sometimes we miss it. Wow, that's, that's harsh. Moses dies on Mount Pisgah and never gets to the promised land. No, I already showed you he got to the promised land in Matthew 17. You know, that's not the only time. Moses is going to be in the land again. Revelation chapter 11. Well, I'll, I'll just read this to you real quick. Revelation chapter 11. The Lord says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. And then he goes on and describes the two witnesses and the description is stunning because it is so obvious to me that the two witnesses are Elijah and Moses. Now people have made all kinds of things about who it might be, but the miracles manifested through these two witnesses are miracles that only Elijah and Moses did. So I believe that's who we're talking about here. And if you want to argue with me about that, that's fine. We can have that conversation. I'll show you how you're wrong and we'll move on in, in love and And he says down in verse 7, when they have finished their testimony. So for three and a half years, first three and a half years of the tribulation, the two witnesses, Moses, Elijah, are going to be in Jerusalem. And they're going to be prophesying and speaking the truth of the word of God. Why? Because the rebellious world still is being given grace. There's still water flowing from the rock. There's still a hope if they will turn to the Lord and be saved. And when they finish their testimony, watch this. The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically, spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So we know it's Jerusalem. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Yeah, they're gone. They're dead. They're down. They're out. (laughs) They're not going into the promised land. Well... After three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet. (laughs) And great fear fell upon those who were watching them, and they heard a loud voice from heaven say to them, Come up here! And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. So cool. (laughs) My friends, Moses, listen, Moses will himself be willingly struck. If this is in fact Moses, and again, the evidence is overwhelming that it is, then that means he will return to Jerusalem. He will stand again in the land before the end of this age. And he will do so knowing he has three and a half years to preach and then he's going to be struck dead. Listen, listen, I'll I'll end with this. Those who love the Lord Jesus 
are always the ones ultimately who take the strikes, even the scourgings, rather than give them. See, as you speak to the rock and the living water flows, it's not just sweet, it's encouraging, it's strengthening, it's confidence, it's hope, it's bigger than anything that this world can offer. Which is why Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, you've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. The world struck Jesus and he died. The world will strike those who follow Jesus. And many of them have died 2,000 years. Some may yet. In fact, some will yet. But Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Who would sign on to such an assignment? Only one who has seen and loved the rock who is Christ. So if you're following my train of thought here, so Moses He lost the promised land. He had to be scourged as a father scourges a son. He struck out. And there was disciplinary action for him. But the same Moses who died on Mount Pisgah now comes back in the transfiguration and gets to be in the land there with Jesus. And by the way, Luke tells us talking about Jesus' death, talking about the first time the rock would be struck. And the same Moses then willingly returns with the message of the gospel of grace for three and a half years until he is struck. But I guarantee this, after he's caught up and returns to heaven, it'll be with great joy. Because to be struck for the rock is eternally worth every stripe, bruise, wounding, and mortal blow. It's why when persecution comes and assume that it's going to come in greater degree as we before we are through this wilderness but as persecution comes the people of jesus we don't lash out we don't strike back we speak to the rock and have the confidence and strength and words of god to give water to a thirsty world and that's why paul was able to say from now on let no one cause trouble for me for i bear on my body the brand marks of jesus Have you been struck because of your faith, because of following after Jesus? Have you been branded, oh, one of those crazies, just because you believe God and followed through? Have you taken it out on others? Striking the rock himself? Hey, listen, whether you've been striking the rock or you've been struck by unbelief, Jesus is here for you. Grace and truth is still the name of the game in this age. And all you need to do this morning is just come and speak to Jesus. 